0: All right, as Chris said, please take your Bibles, and if you need the Pew Bible there in front of you, it is uh, found on page three, um, starting on page three and moving on. Um, We are going to be reading this morning, Genesis chapter six, uh, verse nine through the end of chapter seven, and um, don't be freaked out because, you know, Jeremy read the Begats last week, and this starts out sounding like it's going to be that, but it's not. So, Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 through the end of chapter 7. Again, page 3 in your pew Bibles. Let's read God's Word. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was just a man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed... It was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourselves an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits with width 50 cubits, And it's height thirty cubits. You shall make a window for the ark. And you shall finish it from a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. And you shall make with it lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under the heaven all flesh. In which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives, with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you, that um, they shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, of the animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing on the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself all food that is eaten and you shall gather it to yourself and you shall and it shall be food for you and for them thus noah did according to all god commanded him so he did then the lord said to noah come into the ark you and all your household because i have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation you shall take with you seven each of every clean animal a male and its and his female two each of animals that are unclean a male and his female also seven each of the birds of the year male and female to keep the species alive on all the face of the earth for after seven more days i will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights and i will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that i have made and noah did according to all the lord commanded him noah was 600 years old when the flood waters were on the earth. So Noah, with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, went into the went into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean animals, of animals that are uncle- unclean, of birds and everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two, they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass, after seven days, that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, the second month the 17th day of the month on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were open and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights on the very same day noah and his and noah's sons shem ham and japheth and noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And then they went into the ark to Noah two by two, all of flesh, which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Now the flood was on the earth forty days The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed fifteen cubits forward, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man. And all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air, and they were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive, and the waters prevailed, and the earth 150 days. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you. We thank you that you're a God that, consistently makes a way. Um, that you're a God that that desires to have fellowship with us, a God who loves us. Um, but God, that you're not a pushover God. You're not a, um, a wishy-washy God. God, you are a God of justice and holiness and righteousness. And Lord, just help us to learn from you and learn to be more like you. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs> As we
1: continue in our journey through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, we come to perhaps one of the most familiar and well-known stories in all of the Old Testament, and that is Noah and his ark. Almost everyone, regardless of their church background, is familiar with this particular story and Noah the Ark, and all those animals that were on the Ark, and for those who doubt maybe the popularity of this story, the evidence is really all around us. If you travel across our nation, you will find Noah's Ark restaurants, Noah's Ark paintings, Noah's Ark games, Noah's Ark t-shirts, and Noah's Ark coffee mugs, and you name it, etc. In fact, the largest water park in America is located in the Wisconsin Dells, and it is called none other than... Noah's Ark Water Park. I would venture to say that most of our conceptions, though, of Noah's Ark typically comes from children's books. For example, like the picture on the screen behind me. That may be your conception of Noah and his Ark. It's cute, it's colorful, and surely it is fun for children of all ages. But with all of this popularity, and even commercialization of Noah's Ark, comes this great danger. And that is, we can easily miss the message of Noah in the Ark. When we come to the story of Noah's Ark and the flood, we want to know, our curiosity begs questions such as, how big was Noah's Ark? How many animals did Noah take on the ark? And how did Noah get all of those animals onto the ark? What was the extent of the flood? Did it really cover the entire earth? Now these questions are useful. They're rather important. And I would encourage you to read the two inserts in your bulletin. Or uh, if you want a more detailed explanation in answering some of these questions, I would encourage you to go to the information center in the back. There's a couple of handouts back there and take those home and read them. And while these questions are worthwhile, if we stop at these questions though, we will miss the larger lesson that God intends for us to learn from Noah's life. In fact, this morning, That's what I want us to focus on in particular. Not so much Noah's Ark, while that is critically important, but I want us to focus on the life of Noah. And here's what we learn when we examine Noah's life from the perspective of Genesis chapter six and seven here. Notice that in your notes, if you wanna pull that insert out, you're welcome to or you can just follow along on the screen behind me. And here's what we learn. Here's the overarching lesson. By faith, the righteous walk with God in a corrupt world. By faith, the righteous walk with God in a corrupt world, even if it means walking with God alone. Moses emphasizes this remarkable characteristic when he writes in the very last part of Genesis chapter six, verse nine. Listen to the words of Moses again. Noah walked with God. Now let that sink in. Let that kind of rush over you for a moment. That phrase, walked with God, is the key difference in Moses' life. In fact, that phrase is what set him apart in a world that was corrupted by sin. And as we will see, walking with God is still the key difference for us who claim to be Christ followers here this morning. So let's unpack this for a moment for the next few minutes here. What do we see? What lessons can we apply to our own life from a story that is so well, well known to everyone? First of all, notice the first lesson. Walking with God gives us perspective in a corrupt world. It gives us perspective. Now probably the most difficult issue to deal with in the story of Noah and the ark is the flood itself. When you think about the magnitude of a global flood, one question keeps floating to the surface. Why? Why would God do such a thing? Why did God hit the, quote, delete button and wipe out all of humanity with the exception of Noah and his family? Well, this is where perspective becomes very important. And not our perspective, but God's perspective, which only comes from walking with God and seeing what he saw and listening to what he said. Without God's perspective, here's what I would say. Our natural default mode is to become rather cynical about God and even lose faith in God particularly when it comes to this story. If we come at this story from our human perspective, we will not understand the story. We will miss the bigger lesson that God has for us. And walking with God is key. It was key for Moses. It gave him perspective about the wickedness of humanity, it gave him perspective about what God was actually seeing on the earth and about what God was telling Moses to do in response to what God saw. It's no different today. We see things in this world, and when we come at it from our perspective, we come at it from a human perspective, we come at it from our justice, what we think is fair and not fair. And we miss it. We have to see the world from God's perspective. In walking with God, when we walk with God, we're in his word, we listen to his word, we hear what he says, and he's giving us his perspective. So notice this. Where do we find God's perspective? As already alluded to, it comes from God's word. In fact, the Bible is this grand story of God's creation of Adam and Eve. It's also the story of Adam and Eve's fall into sin. It's the grand story of God's rescue of mankind through Jesus, culminating in the restoration of a new heaven and a new earth, where God's people will live under God's perfect rule for eternity. And Genesis here gives us the beginning of this perspective of God's grand story of creation, the fall into sin, and God's rescue of humanity. So far in this series, we have seen creation. We have seen how God created the heavens and the earth from his perfect goodness. In everything that God created was what? It was good, he said. Everything he saw was good. We've seen the creation of mankind, how God created Adam and Eve in his image to know God and to join a relationship with God in order to spread God's glory to the ends of the earth because we are his representatives made in his image. And we've also seen the fall, the Adam and Eve's fall into sin and how they rebelled against God and his rule. And because of that sin and now because of our sin, our relationship with God has been severed. And our disobedience to God demands his judgment. Listen, the reality is each of us is born with a sin nature. And every one of us here, we live in a world that is contaminated by sin. And at the end of the day, death, as we saw in the genealogy of chapter 5, death is inevitable for every one of us as a consequence of not only Adam's sin, but our sin. And so while death reigns because of sin, listen, grace prevails because of Jesus Christ. That's the hope we claim to. That is the hope that we we cling to and proclaim. Noah, the ark, and the flood is a historical picture, if you will, of this grand theme. In Genesis chapter 4, we see the escalation of a world corrupted by sin. We see the marks of human depravity, but we also see God's grace as a remnant of people began to call on the name of the Lord for their salvation. The first part of Genesis 6 here, it shows us how bad things have gotten when people seek to live without God, apart from His grace. And what Moses is doing for us here in this particular chapter of 6 is he is showing us, as we learn in chapter, in the beginning part, that the flood of human depravity always raw, results in the flood of divine destruction. So, therefore, in light of this truth, Moses is saying to us, and God is saying to us through Moses, Receive receive God's gracious offer of divine deliverance before it's too late. Now, notice what God saw at this particular point in human history. Notice this in your notes, coming up on the screen. God saw the wickedness of mankind corrupting the earth. Moses' assessment of the wickedness of humanity before the flood, it is astounding and shocking. Look what God saw in verse 5. This is in your notes if you want to follow along. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You drop down to verses 11 and 12. Notice what God saw as well. It says, The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Listen, long gone is the beauty of paradise, of the Garden of Eden. Rather than beauty, the whole earth was now corrupted with sin and filled with violence. In fact, this word corrupt is a rather interesting word. It means morally degraded. It's rotten. It's putrid. This word describes a world in the final stages of moral decomposition. The Living Bible paraphrases the last phrase in verse 12, man was rotten to the core. And that is certainly one way to describe it. Violence also is now the gruesome result of such moral corruption. Human life is no longer sacred nor respected. And this is what characterized the days of Noah before the flood. Corruption and violence. And we are all prone about now, to read these verses and say, whoa, man, those people were wicked. How could they be so corrupt and evil? And instead, we need to read these verses and we need to then look in the mirror because there is no difference between them and us. That's the whole point of what Paul later writes in Romans chapter three, twenty-three, when he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So understand, there's no difference between them and us. We are all sinners here, saved by the grace of God, and that's the only difference between the wickedness of mankind that God saw and the righteousness of Noah that God saw. So God saw the wickedness of mankind, but notice what else God saw. He saw the righteousness of Noah living blameless in his generations. Look what God said to Noah in chapter 7 of verse 1. God tells Noah, listen, I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Now, it's important to stop here and note that Noah was righteous because he had a, we could say it this way, a right relationship with God Almighty, his creator. Not based on anything he did, but simply because of his faith in God. Noah was far from perfect, as we'll see in chapter 9. He, too, inherited Adam's sin, just like all of us have. But because of his faith in God, Genesis 6-9 now says Noah was a just man. In fact, that word just simply means righteous and perfect. And we could also translate that word as blameless in his generations. Noah walked with God. Now that phrase, perfect in his generations, that is a phrase that describes Noah's life among the people of his day. His life, in other words, was totally contrasting from the wickedness of those around him. What this tells us is that Noah stood out from a culture of wickedness and corruption. Noah was different. He was distinct. He walked with God in a crowd of people that did not. In other words, Noah's lifestyle was so different from those around him that he seemed, he appeared, he came across as blameless by comparison, and God took notice of it. Living a righteous life, I would say, is hard in any day. But Noah's example proves to us that it is possible for all of us as Christ followers here this morning. Notice what God said in response to what he saw. First of all, God resolved to destroy the wicked in their world. Notice what God said to Noah in verse 13. Look at it with me here in your notes or your Bibles. It says, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, here's what God said. I will destroy them with the earth. Now, it's significant that in the Hebrew, the words here, corrupt and destroy, are very similar. What did God say he was going to destroy? A world that had become corrupt. In fact, a world that had already begun to destroy itself through its corruption. As one commentator remarks, the Hebrew here makes it plain that what God decided to destroy has been virtually self destroyed already. And so, just as God had promised earlier to Adam and Eve, sin brings forth death separation from God. And here in Genesis 6, we see a world well, sin, where sin corrupted every nook and cranny of civilization. And so with a grieved heart, with a broken heart, God resolved to destroy the wicked in the earth with this global flood. God told Noah in verse 17, and behold, I myself God is taking responsibility for this. And God is saying to Noah, I myself, I am bringing the flood of waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh. And that word flesh is in reference to humanity's flesh, in which is the breath of life, and everything that is on the earth shall die. And the question we all have right now is why? Is how could a loving God do such a thing? Why would God use a flood to bring judgment for sin? And again, I suggest to us that without God's perspective, we will struggle to accept God's way of dealing with our sin. Understand something here. As we have seen, from the very beginning of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. And that God, the creator God, is a holy God. He is a just God. And he could not allow wickedness to go on and on and on without dealing with it. And so a global flood would be the most effective way of purging the world. It would wash the earth clean, so to speak, so that not a trace of the wicked or their wickedness could be found. But God is also a God of grace. God is good. And we have seen that all through the book of Genesis leading up to this point. And that's why God's perspective, you cannot jump into the middle of the story here. Most people, when they come to this story, that's what they do. They jump into the middle and they expect it to make sense to them. They expect to figure it out. You've got to start with Genesis 1-1 and see who our God is first and foremost from Genesis 1-1 and tracing it all the way up to this point in human history. God is the God of grace. God used the flood to start a new creation with Noah and his family, which then brings us to the second thing that God said. God promised to rescue Noah and his family. Only one man and his family were saved from destruction of the flood. Notice why in verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, this is the very first time that this word grace is used in all of Scripture. And it means undeserved favor. In other words, God, I mean, in other words, grace describes the blessing that God gives to those who do not deserve it. So please do not read this verse and think, oh man, Noah must have been some really great guy. And because he was this great guy, and because he walked with God, he earned God's grace. Please don't think that, because that's impossible. Noah didn't, quote, earn anything. God's grace, understand this, was a gift Noah received from God by faith. And instead of saying Noah found grace, we could easily just say grace found Noah. And because of grace, God made this audacious promise to Noah in verse 18. In fact, it's referred to as a covenant, the Noahic covenant. Notice what it says in verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you. And a covenant in this regard is a promise that God makes to one. It's an unconditional promise. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And so Moses, get this, he is showing us through Noah's life, through Noah's example, that walking with God gives us God's perspective in a corrupt world. Noah had God's perspective about the wickedness of humanity. God, Noah had God's perspective about the coming judgment through the flood here. Because he walked with God, and because he walked with God, he saw what God saw. He heard what God had to say. And having God's perspective, let me tell you, it, is, it was essential for the next 120 years of Noah's life. Notice point number two here. Walking with God requires perseverance in a corrupt world. You ever thought about how long it took Noah to build the ark? Some of you may know it took 120 years for Noah to build the ark. Most of us would get tired after 12 years, 12 months, or even 12 days. Perhaps some of you after 12 minutes. Why? Because we want to see results immediately. We want proof. That what we are doing is making a difference. That's why I don't mind mowing the yard. I mow a yard and I look behind me, I'm like, yeah, man, that looks awesome. I see what I'm doing, accomplishing. Right? We will always want to see results. But the metaphor here of walking with God suggests the long haul. We may run for short distances, but if you need to go far... Walking is more effective for the long haul. And God warned Noah of the impending judgment, and he told him to start building an ark 120 years before the flood. And by faith, Noah started working, and he persevered in that working. In fact, notice the perseverance of Noah. For 120 years, Noah obeyed the commands of God in the midst of ridicule. God told Noah in verse 14... Make yourself an ark. Now, we're so familiar with this story that it's hard for us to even imagine that. But put yourself in Noah's shoes here for a moment and just imagine what might have went through his mind when God said, Noah, make yourself an ark. And I'm sure maybe, perhaps, Noah thinking an ark. What's an ark? I've never seen one before. And if I start building one, what will people think of me? They're going to mock me. They're going to ridicule me. Listen, Noah couldn't go down to the local marina and buy an ark. He had to build one. And so here Noah was, 500 years old at the time, by the way, building this giant boat in the middle of the desert. No wonder people thought he was crazy. No wonder they mocked him. And yet notice what God says of Noah. It is a remarkable statement in verse 22. It says, thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Oh, may that be said of me, and may that be said of you as a Christ follower. What a remarkable statement about Noah's perseverance to obey God in the face of adversity and ridicule. John Calvin gets to the point when he writes, and I quote his words, First, the prodigious size of the ark might have overwhelmed all his senses, so as to prevent him from raising a finger to begin the work. Let the reader, that is us, reflect on the multitude of trees to be felled, on the great labor of transporting them, and the difficulty of joining them together. The matter was also long deferred, for Noah was required to be engaged more than a hundred years in most troublesome labor nor can we suppose him to have been so stupid as not to reflect upon the obstacles of this kind. And yet, no matter how difficult, no matter how illogical it seemed, Noah did according to all that God commanded him. I think it goes without saying that the task of building the ark was rather enormous. In fact, building the ark required careful planning and engineering and 120 years of work. But Noah did all that God commanded him. This Hebrew word for ark here in Genesis 6 basically means basket or container It was designed for flotation, not navigation. Therefore, the ark had no rudder because Noah didn't need to steer it. He just needed a boat that would float. So the ark was this ship-like vessel, perhaps like a long super tanker made of gopher wood or cypress wood designed to keep Noah, his family, and all the animals afloat during the flood. In fact, studies have shown that the ark's proportions were ideal for a seaworthy vessel. The question that gets most often asked about the ark, though, is, well, how big was it? Let's just say, very big. But God tells us specifically how big it was in verses 14 and 15. Notice what it says. Moses writes, or this is God speaking to Noah, telling him how big to build the ark. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. It's width 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and you shall finish it to a cubit from above. And set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Now a cubit is a measurement that is usually taken to equal about 18 inches. So converting that that means the arc was 450 feet long about one and a half football fields long. 75 feet wide, think of seven seven parking spaces wide. 45 feet high three stories high with three decks, a series of small windows under the roof and one very large door. Now, another question that's frequently asked about the ark is how many animals were on the ark. And the answer is, we don't know for certain how many animals were on the ark. Here's what we do know for certain, is that there was plenty of room for all the animals that God wanted on the ark. In fact, God told Noah in verses 19 and 20, look at it with me. He says, you are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. Now at this point, some of you may be going a step further in your questions and actually wondering, well, how could one guy fit a million species of animals on a boat? That's impossible. Well, I would say to you, first remember, Noah was not instructed to bring two of every species. As if he used our modern classification system. Instead, Noah was to bring two of every kind of unclean animal and more of the clean animals. In fact, the phraseology there that we see here in Genesis six of every kind is the same thing we heard in the creation story when God created after its kind. Second, remember, the ark is rather big. In fact, the total space was over 1.5 million cubic feet. Dr. Henry Morris has calculated that the ark was large enough to hold the contents of over 500 railroad boxcars, cars, providing space for all the animals, food, Noah and his family. Maybe some of you still have this question. Well, how did Noah get all the animals on the ark? That would seem impossible for Noah to hunt down all the animals and then get them on the ark. But remember, God told Noah the animals would come to him at the end of verse 20. And yes, that is a miracle of God. I would also propose that if God is powerful enough to enable the animals to migrate to the ark, then it's certainly possible that God enabled the animals to even go into some type of hibernation during their time on the ark. Now, again, these are all legitimate questions. But here's my warning. Don't let each of these questions, as important as they are, Stand in the way, get in the way of seeing the bigger lesson of Noah and the ark. Remember, God is a sovereign creator. And as the sovereign creator, God knew exactly how big Noah needed to build build the ark. And second, don't miss the lesson that Noah obeyed God. That screams to us. You can't help but see that. It jumps off the pages of the Bible here. Noah obeyed God regardless of how big the task or how long it took to complete the task. And that is amazing. And that is an example for me and you as Christ followers here this morning. Second of all, Noah proclaimed the righteousness of God in the midst of corruption. Now, this much is implied in Genesis 6, but it is stated clearly in the New Testament over in 2 Peter 2 5, where Noah is called this preacher of righteousness. And so think of this Noah was not just a builder who knew how to construct an enormous boat, he was also a preacher. A heralder, someone who witnessed, someone who shared and warned people of God's coming judgment and invited them to join him in the ark of salvation at a time when it appeared the flood was never going to come. But no one seemed to listen to Noah. Can you imagine, just for a moment here, the ridicule and the rejection Noah endured? Imagine the verbal abuse he and his family endured. Endured. Imagine the mocking that came at his expense. But it didn't matter. Noah obeyed the commands of God, and he proclaimed the righteousness of God for 120 years. And again, what a powerful reminder that God oftentimes calls us to follow him in the face of adversity and hostility. And by faith, that is exactly what Noah did. But we also see a third thing where Noah persevered. And that is number three. Noah believed the salvation of God in the midst of judgment. God resolved to destroy the wicked. And God promised to save Noah and his family through the ark. But get this. Noah had no tangible signs to verify that this would happen. All he had was the word. Of God. But God's word was more than enough for Noah to act. And so Noah, get this, he built his entire life around the promise of God, and entered the ark of salvation according to Genesis 7, verse 7. And as you read through chapter 7 here, you can't help but feel this sober reality of two things that kind of rise to the surface here. And that is one, this universal flood God said would come in response to the corruption that filled the earth. Moses tells us in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 7 that all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were open, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. You drop down to verse 17, and it says, Now the flood was on the earth 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And and the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. In verse 24 says, And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. The depth of the flood and the duration of the flood compels us to think of it as a global flood not merely a local flood the second thing that we see here the second sober reality that jumps out to us is this universal destruction and death as a result of this global flood notice the devastation the flood brought in verses 21 through 23 it says and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life. And by the way, that phrase is in reference to man because that takes us back to Genesis 2 when God breathed into Adam the breath of life. All that was on the dry land died. So God destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. The picture of Noah in the ark and the flood is not what you see in children's books. The picture is of total destruction and death to every living thing, except Noah and his family who believed the salvation of God and acted on it by entering the ark. Now, I'm sure there were people in Noah's day, just as there are people in our day now, who felt they had no warning. And perhaps even shook their fist at God in heaven and cried, This isn't fair. Cried out in anger at God, bitterness at God, resentment toward God. But God's judgment was not some divine whim, and nor was it without warning. God's heart was grieved by man's wickedness. In fact, God tells us in Ezekiel 33:11, "As surely as I live," declares the sovereign Lord, "I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live." 1 Peter 3:20 tells us that God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And why was he patient? To give Noah time to warn people of the coming flood. He gave Noah 120 years. That's how long God's patience was. And Noah invited them. He warned them. He told them. He told them of God's salvation and invited them, join me in the ark of salvation. And so understand, God was more than willing to rescue all who would believe in his promise of salvation and walk with him. Today, there's no difference. Today, God is still willing. He is still willing to rescue anyone who will believe and respond to his gracious invitation of rescue from the coming judgment. And make no mistake about it, this flood, the historical flood in Genesis 6 here, is a vivid reminder to us today of the reality of the final judgment that will come when Christ returns to the earth. In fact, 2 Peter 3.9 says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. What promise? To return, to come. And when he comes, he will not come as the Savior, he will come as a judge. And he is not slow in keeping that promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, listen to what he says, Peter. Instead, God is patient with you. Why? He's not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ and enter the ark of Jesus Christ. God holds the world accountable for its behavior. The Bible tells us that God is grieved over our sin and the harm that it does to one another, and he will not put up with it forever. We live in a moral universe, and to go against the moral laws which God has built in the very fabric of our society invites disaster. We have seen already sin affects our personal lives, Our families, our church, our community, our nation, and ultimately our world. And the Bible says that every mouth will be silenced and that the whole world will be held accountable to God, according to Romans 3.19. We cannot escape the fact that we are responsible for our own behavior and that a future judgment is coming when we will stand before God and we will answer for the way in which we have lived. But folks, listen to me. There is good news. I have good news for you. God has good news for you this morning. And the good news is God has also provided a way for you to be rescued from your sins and the judgment that is coming. And so before it is too late... I plead with you, accept God's gracious invitation of rescue. Notice this in your notes here coming up on the screen. Yes, God judges sin. That's the message, part of it, of this Noah and the flood. But even in judgment, God graciously provides a way to be rescued through faith in Jesus Christ, who is the ark of our salvation. Do you realize God invited Noah and his family to come into the ark. And that is God's invitation to you here this morning. God has not yet closed the door of salvation in Jesus Christ. There is still time for you to respond to God's invitation and be rescued through faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, the mo- most familiar verse in all the Bible, we know this, but do we believe it? Where Jesus himself says in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not, what? Perish, but have everlasting life. Listen, the ark here is a picture of salvation. And so the only question that matters today in all of your life is this. Are you in God's ark of salvation? Because when God closes the door, it will be too late. God has given us Jesus Christ as the ark to escape his judgment against our sin. And the question is Have you ever responded to God's invitation of rescue by placing your faith in Jesus Christ? If not, you can do so today. You can do so right now during our response time. Let's bow our heads together. Jesus is the ark of salvation. He alone can save you from your sins. He alone can grant you the gift of eternal life. And He alone can rescue you from the judgment to come. And so run to the ark of salvation and put your trust in Jesus Christ before it's too late. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We ask that you would move in our hearts and help us to see our sinfulness and need for Jesus Christ as the ark of our salvation. And like Noah May we who are already Christ followers, may we strive to walk with you in the context of our lives today through the power of your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise team's gonna sing the chorus, and as they do, will you respond? Will you cry out in prayer for God to save you and to repent of your sins and to claim his forgiveness and the gift of eternal life? Respond to his gracious invitation of rescue. Now where you're seated.